This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. In this episode, I have back fan favorite James Kukios, U of M alum and partner at Morrison and Forrester. We take up issues from the Morrison and Forrester October anti-international anti-corruption alert. We consider the DOJ guidance on corporate inability to pay. We take a deep dive into the unit oil in Broglio. We look at the EU whistleblower initiative. We consider OECD concerns around enforcement in Brazil. And then we ask, in Mexico, are things really going to change? As always, it's a great episode with James. I know you will enjoy it. Thanks again for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with uh, another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have back with me James Kukios, partner at Morrison & Forster, to take a look at a couple of recent editions of the firm's always great uh, monthly anti-corruption newsletter. So, James, first of all, uh, welcome back. Thank you very much, Tom. So uh, in this episode, James, we're going to take a look at some of the issues from the October newsletter. And uh, I wanted to start with uh, the DOJ issued some new formal guidance on corporate inability to pay claims. Um, and the, I guess the question I wanted to pose to you is, is this something new or is this really a codification of how either informal practice or practice at the fraud unit went on uh, anyway? I'd say it's it's more of a codification of informal practice. There there may be a few tweaks here and there, but this really is kind of the practice that had developed over the years in the fraud section when evaluating claims by corporate uh, defendants that a substantial penalty would harm their their uh, continued viability uh, to do business. Um, it, it's interesting; those didn't come up all that often. Um, you see them over the years, uh, going back to 2012, for example, the Nordam resolution, where there was discussion that if Nordam had to pay, which was a um, maintenance repair and or, um, uh, for air, aircraft company, and the argument there by Nordam was if they had to pay a substantial fine, they'd go out of business. And then you saw it in the sentencing of Odebrecht in 2017 um, and in a, another uh, resolution in 2018 with Transport Logistics International. So it didn't come up all that often. There was a informal practice when it did. And I don't know if it's because we were seeing slight increase in these types of claims that, that DOJ thought it would be a good idea to, to codify that practice and make it more clear to companies and counsel what their expectations are when it comes to an inability to pay claim. One thing I found really interesting, Tom, is there is actually a paragraph that says, here are the things that we generally take in consideration, and here are the things that generally will not establish an inability to pay um, argument. And I think maybe what might be happening is 
not only is it a codification of existing practice, but they're seeing common arguments that are not moving the needle for DOJ, and they wanted to be more transparent in that regard as well to say, look, these are the things that we're actually considering. We're hearing these other things, but don't tell us those things because those aren't the kind of things that we're thinking about uh, when it comes to inability to pay. It was probably not well known, or certainly as not publicized as some of the other uh, DOJ uh, practices. But I mean, I've been aware since at least the first Halliburton uh, FCPA resolution that the DOJ would work with a company around uh, the fine and penalty. They might have a pay payout program of some amount. Uh, they would take into consideration the ability to pay. So it seems to me this this has this discussion at least between the DOJ and counsel for uh, defendants has been going on for some time. Agreed. Agreed. And there are actually statutory and um, policy provisions for this. For example, the sentencing guidelines um, provides a legal basis for inability to pay claims um, and, and other statutes. So there is, you know, this is a um, not a newfound development, but I think just the fact that they're articulating in a policy document, this is how we're going to exercise our discretion when it comes to these issues um, is a is a pretty good development because I think it increases transparency. There's more public visibility into how DOJ exercises discretion, and it really helps prosecutors as well understand um, how they're supposed to exercise their duties in evaluating these claims as well. James, I'd like to next uh, turn to uh, something that I think is going to be one of the biggest uh, developments, uh, certainly for this year, and I really wanted to get your take on it, which is the Asani's guilty plea that was uh, um, released. And uh, it turns out that the CEO, former CEO and former COO of Unioil had both pled guilty uh, and had been cooperating with the Department of Justice. And I say that uh, I found it uh, so significant because in the uh, criminal information that was released, there were 25 companies not named but identified that the Asanis had uh, engaged in bribery and corruption around. Two were identified, so it's 27 companies. And um, having been in Houston uh, during the panel PINA days, I certainly am aware of what can happen when the Department of Justice uh, gets that type of information and has cooperation and how many companies can be looking at you know, potential fines and penalties going forward. Is is this as big as I think it is, or is this more routine? No, I think you're right, Tom. This does have the potential to be a very big investigation. Um, obviously, to the extent that, uh, as you mentioned, the panel PINA case, if many different companies are using the same intermediary to allegedly pay bribes, uh, and DOJ gets the hold on the intermediary, that can open up uh, a lot of cooperation, a lot of investigations into a lot of companies, uh, and result in a lot of things. Um, interesting in this case, you know, publicly at least, um, the Serious Fraud Office has been doing a lot of the the legwork here. Um, the, the SFO has had a unit oil investigation open for a long time. I think it was known that DOJ had a unit oil investigation as well, but this is kind of the first time also, as you said, that there's kind of a public indication of the potential scope of that DOJ investigation. James, one of the things that also struck me is, and I've tried to communicate this in blog posts and podcasts, is that with uh, the list of companies that were identified, I've really urged 
particularly people in Houston, because there's a lot of Houston companies, but also in other parts of the country, that you need to go back and scrub your operations. And you may have looked once and you may have looked twice, but um, if you're in the energy space particularly, you may need to look again to see if you had any dealings with UniOil because the breadth and scope, the number of countries where bribes was paid, it's all identified in the criminal information. And so it gives uh, a compliance officer or perhaps uh, someone like yourself, an outside counsel who has to come in and do yet another investigation, some pretty good starting points to look. Is is that a message that you try to uh, communicate to Morrison and Forrester clients as well? Yes, I think that's very good advice. You never know. Um, and, and, you know, you may have done a first pass and not seen anything, but now with this additional information out, you're right, you can use this, you can leverage this for an internal investigation, do some additional document searches, maybe look in a few different uh, areas um, in, in your books and records or different sources of emails or other kind of uh, data and, and look for some of these terms. So I think that's very good advice, Tom. The uh, turned out that in the face of withering criticisms and even attacks against the serious fraud office investigation, the Asanis have been cooperating now for about 18 months with the Department of Justice. Uh, they have uh, sentence scheduling for, I believe, next March or April 2020. Uh, what what kind of impact would would their cooperation have given the breadth and scope of the bribery that was at least identified in the criminal information? You're right. The, uh, the, um, the Asanis are scheduled to be sentenced in April, 2020. One thing is interesting. Um, we had talked about this in an earlier um, top 10 is that it looked like the UK was actually trying to get one of the Asanis extradited from Monaco last year and were unsuccessful. Uh, and then, lo and behold, it turns out the the U.S. authorities have gotten their hold uh, their hands on this guy. So, I, I don't actually have any insight in how that happened, but I find that pretty fascinating. Um, the U.K. was unable to get him, but the the U.S. did. So I, thought, I find it very interesting. Um, you know, this could be it'll be interesting to see what kind of sentence these fellows get. I mean, if they were involved in this massive bribery scheme, the proposed guidelines would be massive, sentence would be massive. Um, much of it is going to be based on, for example, the uh, amount uh, of value gained through these bribes, the number of bribes there were, whether there are high-level officials involved. So the starting point for these fellows could be very, very high. And then the question would be, how much credit does DOJ recommend the judge give them for their cooperation? And how much credit does the judge actually give them? So, you know, it's possible that that their cooperation could be so good that they'd get a pass, but my guess is they're going to start out pretty high uh, and face some jail time, even if they cooperated. Some kind of deal to get them to the United States as well, which is also possible. There could have been concessions made, but those usually would have been made public. So once again, drawing on my experience uh, here in Houston and with the first Halliburton uh, FCPA enforcement action, uh, Jack Stanley, um, was a key player in that, uh, former um, business unit president, who uh, not only pled guilty but cooperated extensively in that case. So uh, I think Houston, the Houston bench is well aware of, of a significant cooperation, um, but it, it, is it really up to the discretion of the court? It is in many ways, and, and I just went back and looked at my notes here, Tom, and it turns out that the Asanis actually pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to violate the FCPA. Uh, which is a pretty big deal because that limits their um, their potential sentence to 60 months. 
Um, so they'll be starting at 60 months, whereas based on the value of the bribes alleged and things like that, if there are additional counts, um, they could be facing much more time. So that could have been one of the way, reasons that uh, DOJ was able to get the Asanis uh, to cooperate here while they were still fighting extradition to the UK, because there was a, um, a, a, sent, uh, a charging concession in the very beginning. So then it'll be up to the judge to decide whether to give additional credit off that from a, a 5K or a um, post-sentencing reduction. Jens, I'd like to now turn to a announcement that came out of the uh, European Union, where the European Union Council approved the whistleblower protection law. And uh, kind of sitting where I sit and watching the EU over the years, this seems to me to be a pretty big deal uh, because of the really reluctance of uh, Europe, some European companies, some countries rather, uh, to have uh, robust whistleblower protections because of uh, for historical reasons, do you see this as as a uh, revolution or just perhaps an evolution in EU thinking? It is very interesting, Tom. You know, there's there's um, some push and pull in the EU. For example, the OECD is always encouraging whistleblowing and, and protecting whistleblowers. But as you said, uh, many countries in Europe have a bad experience with um, whistleblowing for under communism and things like that, um, fascism, where. Uh, whistleblowing was used for nefarious purposes, and so there's kind of a uh, distrust of whistleblowing. So this will be interesting to see how it does um, uh, affect things. I think any time that a jurisdiction introduces a new whistleblower law and provides some teeth to it, for example, protection from retaliation, things like that, it has the potential to have a big effect on anti-corruption enforcement because you may have more people come forward and report things that they would have been reluctant to do in the past. So we'll have to see um, uh, how this plays out, but we think that th this is a, an important development in the space, and it could lead to increased anti-corruption enforcement, as well as increased enforcement in other areas as well. So James, we had some commentary by the OECD, who you mentioned, over the um, Brazil's foreign bribery enforcement, and the OECD seem to, I'm not sure, criticize is, to, is the right word, but at least raise concerns about enforcement. Uh, I was recently at a conference in Brazil, and, and frankly, it didn't seem to me that there's been really a, a, a significant drop or a noticeable drop in enforcement. And, and certainly one of the things I think you've counseled both me and listeners on this podcast is there's a sort of a, a natural ebb and flow of uh, cases, cases that are settled, cases that come in and and in many ways, um, they don't they don't settle on a predictable uh, schedule, so, so that you can have a year with increased enforcement, and you can have a year with perhaps less enforcement, and and it really doesn't signif sig signify anything. What did you read into the uh, OECD announcement? Sure. So over the last, I'd say, starting about 2015 to 2018, I mean, there really was an amazing uptick in prosecutions in Brazil. Stemming from Lava Jato, um, anti-corruption prosecutions. They were the prosecutors there, were, and the judges were using a lot of new tools that had been recently introduced, like plea agreements, um, sentencing reductions for cooperation, things like that, um, as well as pretrial detention. And there was some pushback that maybe folks had gone too far there. That maybe that their, you know, um, some of the detention had violated people's rights. 
um, and, and it really kind of swung a little too far towards prosecution and away from defendants' rights. Um, it's been a, a little bit different over the last year or so. There seems to be a little bit of a political backlash by by folks maybe in a cynical world uh, trying to preserve their status or undo the potential that politicians um, will uh, suffer harm from these. And so there's been some reversals of convictions. Uh, there's been some uh, new legislation that would restrict the ability of uh, judges and prosecutors uh, to exercise their discretion. That's one of the things that the OECD was uh, particularly concerned about in August 2019. There was a passage of something called the Law on Abuse of Authority by Judges and Prosecutors uh, that would levy penalties on judges and prosecutors for some of their decision-making in cases. Um, the president of the Supreme Court decided to halt investigations and criminal proceedings based on reports by the Financial Intelligence Unit and other administrative agencies, um, which could be used to pursue anti-corruption uh, enforcement actions. And then there was also some attempts to restrict tax authorities' capacity capacity to detect, report, and investigate foreign bribery and money laundering. So there seemed to be this kind of backlash from the political class of trying to restrict the ability of prosecutors and judges to bring robust anti-corruption prosecutions. And that's really what the OECD was reacting to here and expressing criticism that, you know, uh, Brazil took several steps forward in terms of their anti-corruption enforcement program and now seems to be taking several steps backwards. So the OECD is trying to step in and say, you know, you guys ha are members of the OECD anti-bribery convention, you have obligations to enforce your laws robustly, and you need to remember those and not roll this back too far. And so what was going to happen is the OECD was going to go to Brasilia in November and try to talk with Brazilian officials to try to halt some of this rollback. Um, it, it remains to be seen what happens. I mean, I think there were some valid criticisms about some of the tactics used um, in Brazil. Um, not that there was bad faith, but just it was there were some new tactics. So, but this seems to be a little bit beyond those good faith criticisms of those tactics, and maybe some uh, attempts to institutionally roll them back in a way that maybe, from a cynical standpoint, um, not about people's rights, but about protecting certain people. So, the OECD is expressing that concern. It's something to watch out for. I agree with you. There's still some very active. Um, enforcement going on in Brazil. Uh, but it is, I think the OECD is right to be concerned that some of the good work that has been done might be um, uh, rolled back over the next year or so. So James, on uh, for our last topic for this uh, segment, um, I'd like to take up Mexico and Pemex. And in an earlier podcast, uh, we, we talked about that perhaps uh, uh, anti-corruption investigations were going to heat up in Mexico around Pemex but uh, it looks like the firm believes that they may even be uh, moving towards uh, some some greater certainty or some some uh, f some additional investigations. What what are you guys seeing on that? Sure. So it's interesting confluence of events. I mean, uh, the current president of Mexico ran on, uh, among other things, an anti-corruption platform. He's talked a lot about anti-corruption uh, being a priority of his. There had been some pretty meaningful structural changes in anti-corruption enforcement capacity in Mexico over the last couple of years that nobody had really used yet, um, but sort of sets up a structural ability 
to do anti-corruption enforcement if somebody's motivated to do that. Some of those positions have been filled recently. Um, there's still question marks about whether it'll be effective or not. Um, but we do see um, some developments going around around Pemex. Um, back in May, which I think was the one we talked about before, there was a high-profile arrest. The Wall Street Journal in October um, reported on some very interesting private lawsuits where one litigant recorded uh, a, a person talking about how how to bribe officials at Pemex. Um, and then in that same article, there was discussion the fact that DOJ and SEC have also opened investigations into Pemex. So in many ways, you have the potential for what happened in Brazil starting in 2015 to happen in, in Mexico now, because you kind of have these new capacities. You have a political class that may be somewhat motivated to bring these cases and you have DOJ and SEC expressing interest in stepping in as well. Um, so there's a real possibility for this. It, it'll be interesting to see what happens here. I mean, um, Mexico and the U.S. don't always see eye to eye on law enforcement, um, whereas Brazil and the U.S. got along very well uh, and worked very well together in, um, in the Lava Jato investigations. So it remains to be seen whether that same type of relationship can happen. Um, but the fact that DOJ and SEC are looking certainly brings into um, play all of their experience and tools. And oftentimes, especially with Mexico, uh, it's easy, relatively easy for DOJ and SEC to get that interstate nexus that they need because there's so much, as you know, living in Houston, um, back and forth between Mexico and the United States, involvement uh, in, in the economies of Mexico and the United States. And so there really could be something going on here. Um, I think much like you said about whether it's a good idea for companies to go back and look uh, at their deal potential dealings with unit oil, I think it's not a bad idea for companies to go back and look at um, their, uh, their dealings with Pemex as well, especially including you know, any consultants or anything like that. That's interestingly enough, um, the Wall Street Journal article talked about when they this recording that was made, uh, this person who was recorded talked about the ability to pay bribes to Pemex officials through success fees, uh, to family members, through false consultancies, you know, all those third-party things that we've heard about in every market everywhere. Um, you know, it, it might not be a bad idea for companies to go back and look, did we use consultants uh, in our dealings with Pemex, did we know who they were? Were these legitimate consultants that we had a track record with? Did we pay consultancy fees? Was there a good faith basis for that? Was there an economic rationale for that? Did we know who the people we were paying consultancy fees were? Um, you know, kind of take a one of those, do some hygiene on interactions with Pemex right now, just in case this does become something like Lava Jato. James, let me pick up on one of the points you raised. Uh, I think everyone is, is fairly aware of some of the um, political dynamics between Mexico and the United States, certainly at the, at the very top of both administrations uh, or administrations of both companies and the conflict there. But down when it gets to the line prosecutor, uh, you've talked about the relationship up between Department of Justice, prosecutors in the fraud section and uh, prosecutors in Brazil, but with a wide variety of other prosecutors literally across the globe. So when you get down to the line prosecutors, does kind of what's going on at the top of the administration 
at least uh, with many other countries, does not seem to be that important in terms of cooperation around anti-corruption investigations. No, you raise good points. The It really is not um, about current politics. It's more of a just a general Mexico-U.S. dynamic. Um, there's always, uh, on the Mexican side, at the risk of overgeneralizing, a concern that the United States is is breaching Mexican sovereignty. And so there's oftentimes a reluctance in certain areas for Mexico to allow for U.S. law enforcement to have to be active in Mexico. Um, there's there was really great cooperation historically on um, drug cartels and and um, drug crimes because the the countries could see relatively eye to eye in those. But when it comes to things like uh, Mexican officials, you know, you start to get a little more into that sovereignty issue. Is the U.S. interfering in Mexican politics or is there an ulterior motive to um, somehow upset the um, Mexican sovereignty? And so we didn't always see the same level of cooperation. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but it was a little more guarded when it came to anti-corruption issues. The companies, the countries have been moving closer together on money laundering cooperation. Um, now, part of that is narcotics as well. Um, but you can see that that being a way for the countries to start moving closer together on anti-corruption as well. Uh, when looking at uh, the application of anti-money laundering laws to corruption as well. So it'll be very interesting to see how this develops. It's always just a very, uh, I'll use the word interesting development, uh, just inter interesting relationship between Mexico and the United States when it comes to law enforcement. James, unfortunately, near we are near the end of our time, but I've been visiting with James Kukios, partner at Morrison and Forster, on the firm's uh, October uh, 2019 uh, anti-corruption international anti-corruption newsletter. James, thanks you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Thanks for having me, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'm going to link to the Morrison and Forster alert in our show notes, so check it out. It's got some great information beyond what we talked about in the podcast. I hope you checked out part one of this special two-part series where James and I visited about the firm's September newsletter. If you didn't, check it out. Also, the FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.